Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. All right, how are we doing today, everybody? Good. I've been walking around this morning, and when I walk around on Sundays, I like to, you know, just eavesdrop on your people's conversations. See how holy we're doing this morning, you know? And I, as I'm listening around, I keep hearing people say out loud, it looks so good. And I just want to say, thank you for noticing I got my hair cut. That's it's beautiful. It means a lot to me. No, I'm kidding. Hey, we got new screens, everybody. Yeah? Uh, uh-huh. You can actually read things. It is amazing. Uh, real quick, we had a bunch of guys come in and help out. We did a lot of it in-house because we have people. I'm going to read some names. Doug and Bruce and Sheldon and Mike and Woody, if you know those people, they actually like built those screens with these guys, right? They're the kinds of people that walk into Home Depot and feel like it's their place. I walk in and it seems like Mars, all right? So I don't understand how it works, but they built those things and then they put them up in somehow. I think probably Velcro, but it's up there. And uh, man, I'm really thankful for it. It is a different system than we're used to. So what that means is there's going to be some bumps in the road before is a simple point and click. Now there's some technical things that we're learning as we go. So if it messes up, there's grace for all of us. You're not here for a show, all right? It's a beautiful thing. I'm just letting you know that up front, but hopefully it goes well for us. Today we continue with our penultimate sermon on our Christmas series called The Christmas Story because we're creative at Crossroads, right? And really what we're doing is we're talking through the Christmas story lessons and texts and stories that you've probably heard taught to you before a couple dozen times. And what we're trying to do is ask the simple question, hey, what does the story tell us about the character of God? Not, not the what. We don't want to look at this and say, how can I pass a Bible quiz? We want to look at this and say, what does how God came to this world reveal about the character of God? Because God could have done this in several thousand different ways because he's God and he chose to come to earth this way. So as we read through the stories that we've heard before, what does the how tell us about who God is? That's what we're doing. And so two weeks ago, we had a riveting sermon on genealogies in the first 17 (laughs) verses in Matthew. And what we did was say that, you know, it's in the story of God and often it's overlooked. But when you really look at it, what you see is a mixed bag of people You see overachievers, and you see ignored people, and you see just the people who let their family down, and you just see downright evil people. And maybe the point of why that's included in the story of Jesus is to show us that God came for and died for all those kinds of people. And that no matter how good you are or bad you are, God's going to use you in his story. It's a beautiful picture of who he is and what he came to do. And so we want to get to why God came in the first place and how he did it tells the story of who he is. And so today we're in Matthew 1, right after the genealogies in verse 18 to 25. And 18 starts like this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ happened this way. So I started thinking about birth announcements this week because that's what's happening right here, right now. And I don't know if you guys know this as a cultural phenomenon, but birth announcements are a big deal anymore. You take some kind of adorable picture and you tell the world that you are with child, right? And there's a couple different kinds of birth announcements. 
You have your traditional ones. We have a couple of traditional ones that's just adorable, you know. It's very safe. It's very conservative. These are the kind of people that business casual is their workout attire, you know. Like, relax, I took my tie off, right? It's great. I love it. Uh, another very conservative, traditional, beautiful baby announcements. And then you have the untraditional ones, right? Ice, ice baby, anybody? No? <laughs> Come on, where are my 90s people at? <laughs> Stop, Club Raiden. Listen, I could quote you the whole thing, everybody. Um, or this one, eviction notice, <laughs> which I loved, <laughs> right? A screaming child, like, we're kicking you out of your crib. You need to deal with it. I, I love that one, yeah? So you have the non-traditional ones. Actually, the next one is the best because it's mine. Um, and this is mine. I don't know. I don't know what it says about me, but I do know that this was probably picture six or seven, and right under the A in baby, there's an outlet on the wall that we photoshopped out, because you can't have a healthy kid if there's an outlet in your baby announcement picture. Uh, I will say that it does kind of reflect who I am. I'm a, I'm a twin, right? We've talked about this. I am a natural competitor, because everything I did, everything we did growing up was naturally competitive with the twin. And so here's something about me. It's why... Chantel and some of our staff won't play games with me. I really like to win. <laughs> and, and there's no off switch. And, you know, some people would say to me, Charlie, it's just about having fun. And I'd say, winning is fun. And um, so when we posted that picture, and I don't think I've told my wife this, and so please don't either, I would check it daily. Well, okay, I'd check it like every hour or so <laughs> just to make sure. We posted it at the exact same time on our different social media platforms just to make sure that I had more likes and more comments, right? It's terrible to admit that, but that's the truth. And, and I did, and God is good. So I think the way that we talk about how we have kids, the way that we tell stories reflects who we are. And so I think you have your conservative baby announcements, your traditional ones, and your not traditional ones, and your compulsive ones about how much people like you, right? Um, so when it says in Matthew 1, now this, the birth of Jesus, it happened this way, I think think the next seven verses is going to tell a story about the character of God, because the way that he announces tells us who he is. And that's where we're going to be today. Uh, before we get there, we do two things. We have two goals every Sunday. We want to know God more, and we do that by opening the scriptures and learning about his character that we can't fully comprehend, and that's a beautiful thing, not a scary thing. And then two, we want to experience God, and we worship and why those two things? Because God made us with a mind, will, and an emotion. And all those things are how we know and experience God fully as he's created us too. And if we just know God and we don't, we don't, if we just know God and we don't experience God in any way, it's just a cold knowledge. But if we just experience God without truly knowing who he is, then it's shallow. And so those are our goals. And what that means for you is that this isn't a spectator sport. What that means for us together is we trust that when we open the scriptures, the Holy Spirit speaks. That God is here, that God is active, and that God uses his scriptures to move us closer to Jesus. And so I want to take a minute, and uh, I just want to pray. And I'm going to ask you to pray to yourself silently for a few seconds and ask today that God meets you, that the Holy Spirit speaks to you, and that as we read the scriptures, we know and experience a God who is faithful. So let's pray today. God, I am thankful for this morning, and, and I'm thankful for new things, and I'm thankful for your faithfulness, and the fact that we have the opportunity and the ability just to gather and celebrate your character of this Christmas season. I pray today as we open your scripture that you teach us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you're active, and you speak to us, and you remind us the true things about the God that we follow. 
I'd ask that if you are comfortable, take a couple seconds to yourself and just pray that the Holy Spirit might work in your spirit to teach you things about who God is. I'd also pray that you ask that you pray for me and just that God uses me to speak the truth of the scripture well in a way that's effective and equipping and encouraging to the people of God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Matthew 1, 18, let's go on with our story. It says, when the, the birth of Christ happened this way, while his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit, and we have ourselves a conspiracy, everybody, right? So what happens in this text right off the bat is we have two main characters. We have Mary and we have Joseph, and it says that they were engaged to be married. And let's talk about engagement. So, First century engagement, wildly different than what you and I experienced. So us in the United States, when we get engaged, it's because you've planned for it. It's because you've asked the question, am I crazy? It's because you've dated for two months, or in my case, four years, and you've decided this isn't a bad decision. And you finally, one day, when the time is right, and again, in my case, if you've lied to your future spouse for six months straight, you set up a place that's super romantic, and you can ask the question, will you marry me? And then begins the trial, okay? Then begins the trial of six months of your life being forced into decisions about flowers and photographers and family and style of wedding. Uh, my wife wanted a 12-person wedding in Central Park. I wanted a 700-person wedding at a brewery. So we, we were close. Um, <laughs> I mean, really. And then what happens is, I mean, it is literally, engagement for us is the precursor to will you make it to the wedding? If you can endure this, you guys are going to be great when you're married. We did premarital at a place in Dallas, the uh, church, really big church. It has a great premarital program. And there was 400 people in this room with us. And they do this several times a year. And the first thing they said, day one, session one, was we have one of two goals. We either want to, over the next eight weeks, grow you closer together or break you up, Right? And they said, because you're either going to realize that you're in this for the long haul and it's good, or you're going to realize that you need to run away from each other because it's not good. We see the finish line as marriage, not engagement. And it's a hard testing six months because you're building up all this tension of flowers and photography and family without doing all the, you know, I mean, it's just a tense, tense period. In the biblical sense, though, engagement was different. We see the finish line as marriage. In the first century world, the finish line was engagement. It looked different. And the main difference about engagement in the first century world and ours is it was not about you. It didn't matter when you wanted to be married, who you wanted to be married to, or what you wanted your wedding to look like. You know who decided that? Your parents. So they would find um, another family because it was about corporate identity that was good for their family, and you'd find a fit, and then parents would talk to one another. It's arranged marriages 101. And just so we can get some scope on ages here, usually women that got married in the first century got married around 12 or 13 years old. Mary was probably around 13. So when you read the story of her account in Luke, you think, wow, right? Joseph was probably 18, 19, or 20 years old. The, man was, the male was usually always older because he'd gotten into his trade and his craft and provide a life for his family. And so Joseph's family got with Mary's family and they said, this is good for our families, let's bargain. And so they set a price and then they would sign into agreement this engagement. 
And so in the first century world, when you got engaged, it wasn't about you, it was about the good of your family. And you might hear that as a Westerner that only grew up with rom-coms and Disney and say to yourself, that sounds barbaric. And look, we're not going to get into the value of arranged marriages versus how we do it. I, the Bible doesn't say one way is better than the other, by the way. Um, I think on a side note, uh, when we talk about a biblical view of marriage, it's never been about picking the perfect person. It's more so been about loving the person you pick perfectly because that's how God loves us, you know? And so it's this really beautiful picture in arranged marriages that I'm going to choose to love you. I'm going to choose to every single day, even if I don't know you that well yet. And I'm doing this for a greater good. And so in the first century world, when you were engaged at that moment, you were seen as married. So it says engaged in our text. It says betrothed in some translations. Really, we interpret that as they'd already said, I do. And the way we know that in the Jewish culture isn't just because uh, that's how they talked about it. They had legal ramifications for it. If Joseph would have died before they actually got married, which it usually was a year between engagement and the ceremony, if Joseph would have died, Mary in their culture would have been considered a widow. It's written about in the, the Mishnah, which is the oral interpretation of the law. So people would have treated her like a widow, like her husband died. Because in the first century world, when you got engaged, you were seen as married. The finish line was engagement, not the vows. And so it makes the next part really interesting. It says, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant with the Holy Spirit. Okay, if engagement is seen as married... You still didn't know each other in a biblical way until you got married. You definitely couldn't get pregnant. And so you got to put yourself in Joseph's shoes here just a little bit if you haven't already. He's probably 19. He doesn't know Mary. He doesn't know her character. He only knows of her family. And this 13-year-old girl comes to him and says, Hey, Joseph, I'm pregnant. And they had not known each other yet, you know? And she says but it's not what you think, okay? Up to that point in history, it has always been what you think, you know? And so jo Joseph, thanks. Joseph, at that point, had three options. He had three options. In the first century world, if you were cheated on, and this was seen as adultery, right, because the finish line had already passed. If, if you committed adultery, either when you were engaged or married, the first option he could have done, he could have told everybody. He had every right to. Because somebody cheated on him, and that hurts. <laughs> so they broke a contract, and so he could have gone to the town elders and to the rabbis and to the Pharisees. He could have gone to the leadership and said to all the friends and neighbors and relatives, look what this woman did to me. She cheated on me. And best case scenario for Mary at that point, best case is she's ostracized for the rest of her life. Worst case is she's stoned. It says in Deuteronomy, if you commit adultery, you're going to be stoned. <laughs> you know, death. Uh, the second option he had was he could have ignored it and just pretended like nothing ever happened. But if you keep reading our text, you see why that's not possible. It says in verse 19, because Joseph, her husband-to-be, was a righteous man and he didn't want to disgrace her, he intended to divorce her privately. So it says because he was a righteous man, and that word righteous describes his character, and if he's righteous, he couldn't ignore unrighteousness. So clearly he thought a sin had been committed here. He thought an atrocity against God had been committed. So because he thought that, he couldn't just pretend like it didn't happen because he wants to pursue the ways of God. So he, he, he could have said, yeah, I'm going to tell everybody and you get what you deserve. He could have said, I'm just going to ignore it, but that's not what a righteous man would do. Instead, he took option number three and it says that he went about to divorce her 
privately. And all it took was a certificate that he wrote and signed and gave to her with two witnesses. And here's what I love about this text. I think it's a beautiful picture of what righteousness is. So it says, this is a man who is righteous. And then it's going to say right next to it, this is what righteousness looks like. And we get to glean from that a little bit. So it says, this is what righteousness looks like. And it says he wanted to divorce her privately. And you've got to ask why there. And simply put, the first option of, hey, everybody, here's her sin. Deal with her as you may. might be righteous, but it is not compassionate. It might be just, but it's not loving. The second one isn't righteous at all, nor is it just. It allows sin to flourish. The third one is a mixture of the two. And I think that's a biblical ethic for righteousness throughout it, but especially in the New Testament. As we here now today try and pursue the ways of Jesus, righteousness. It says this in Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone caught you in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Jesus says when he's asked about what the greatest commandment is, they quartered him and they said, give me the greatest commandment, trying to trap him. There were 613. He says, love the Lord your God in Mark 12 with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. From the very beginning, what we see, what we see is that the driving motivation that propels us to pursue righteousness has always been love. Always. Always. What it's saying here, what Joseph is living out and what the Bible's saying is righteous because that's his character which, with which he's acting through. What it's saying is that righteousness at the expense of love is not righteous anymore. He's saying it's always been this convalescence of the two principles, justice motivated by love. Righteousness is the pursuit of justice without losing our passion for loving others. And here's the deal. Not to skip too far ahead, but that's what happened when Jesus came near to us. (laughs) He said, I'm going to love you and I'm going to show you what righteousness looks like in a gentle way by coming near. It's a beautiful picture of biblical righteousness. And oftentimes we want to stand with picket signs and blast people on social media. And I'm just going to ask the question, are we motivated by love in those moments? And is that true righteousness that we find in the scriptures? So it says, here's the story of their engagement. They got engaged, which was marriage. She got knocked up. And that is not something that, that ever, that he ever thought would be possible. But it's not what it looks like because she says, wait a second, I didn't sleep with somebody else. This is different. But Joseph at this point doesn't believe her. What we have is a very un traditional engagement. So then he goes to sleep one night, not believing Mary, and here's what happens in verse 20. When he'd contemplated this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This all happened so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. So our story starts with a very untraditional engagement, and then it moves into an even more untraditional family structure. So Joseph doesn't know what's going on. He just knows that he can't trust Mary. And he's a righteous man, so he deals with it well. And then an angel comes and says to Joseph, hey, she was right. Let me tell you what's about to happen. And what you see is the angel come and say, let me tell you about your family and what your family's going to look like. And it's different than how families functioned in the first century world. So, we've talked about it before. In the first century world, fathers had all the power. All of it. 
And it started from birth. And the first thing you did as a father when you had a kid was you got to decide whether or not you wanted this kid to be in, in your family. And if you did, you picked the kid up and then gave the kid a name. And when we find names in the first century world, and in the Old Testament, names do two things. They give you belonging and they give you purpose. They give you belonging and they give you purpose. And that's your right as a father to pick up a kid and say, you belong to my family and here's your purpose, here's your name. It's usually why name, kids that were named in the first century world were named after their parents because their purpose followed in line with their parents. Joseph was a carpenter. And so what you find in this text is angel comes and says, Joseph, Son of David, here's your belongingness. The son of David, the old king of Israel that will birth the Messiah. Here's where you belong. Let me tell you how this is going to go. Your wife is going to give birth to a kid and you're going to name this kid Jesus because he's going to save the people from their sins. What I love about this text is that it's essentially taking Joseph's right away as a parent to name his child it's saying it's going to be different than what you'd expect because you're not going to get to pick the name of your kid. Because with naming comes belonging and comes purpose. And Jesus had a different purpose than Joseph when he was going to have his first kid. And we see God do this throughout the scriptures, right? So in the Old Testament, we see it with most prominently Abraham. His name was Abram. And it says in chapter 17, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you father of many nations. Abraham before meant high father. Abraham meant father of multitudes. And it's exactly what God was calling him into. He says, you, you will no longer just be a high father. You'll be the father of an entire group of people that will forever shape the world. I will change your name. I will give you belonging. And I will give you purpose. We see it in the New Testament. The first time Jesus meets a man named Simon, uh, who we know as Peter, it says in John 1, Andrew brought him to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. In Aramaic, Cephas means rock. In Greek, Peter, Petra means rock. And Peter became the rock of the church, the building blocks of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus ascended. He's giving him identity, and then he's giving him purpose. And so when it says in our text that you will call his name Jesus, what he's saying is he won't be a carpenter. He will be, Jesus means, it's the Old Testament word, Joshua means Yahweh saves. He will save. So the natural question then is, what will Jesus save people from? Again, not traditional engagement, not traditional family structure, and also not traditional saving. At that time, in the first century world, there was this building by the Jewish people that they were going to be saved. There was this narrative that this authoritative figure is going to pop up and rule the world. That's why Herod, a couple chapters later, says, I'm going to kill all the kids because I'm afraid I'm going to be overtaken. He'd heard about it too. And we have extra biblical historians that talk about it. Suetonius wrote in the 12 Caesars in the 3rd century, there had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Tacitus, another historian in Rome, he says that there was a firm persuasion that at this time in the East, there was to grow a powerful ruler coming from Judea, and they were to acquire a universal empire. But here's what happens is the angel comes and says, hey, it's not going to be what you think it is. It's very untraditional. He's not going to save you from Rome. He's not going to save you from oppression. He's not going to save you from poverty. He's going to save you from your sins. Which leads to the next point. <laughs> we get into verse, look at verse 23. It says, look, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. 
and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we go from all these non-traditional things to maybe the most non-traditional of them all, how babies are made and how they come. And we see this idea of the virgin birth because Jesus is going to save people from their sins and that requires something different. So we have this quote that we've used before here. We did a series on it last May. And it's credited to Augustine, but I think it's been said by a bunch of different people. And um, essentially it says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. What that means is, that means is, on the fundamentals of our faith, we need to agree. On the very fundamentals. And I'll be honest with you, my list on the extremely fundamentals are, is, is pretty small, right? We're going to talk about dancing here at the end of the sermon um, We used to think dancing was a fundamental, like you couldn't dance, and if you did, you went, I'm going to quote this text, straight to hell, right? That is not a fundamental anymore, all right? My point is, we don't have to agree on dancing to serve the same God. We don't. In that one, we can disagree, and that's okay if you disagree with my view on dancing, but it doesn't change the God that we serve. When we say in essentials, unity, those are the things that change the nature and character of God. When you worship, you no longer worship the God I worship by definition anymore. When we say in essentials unity, those are the things that I'd say you leave a church over. And that list is not that large. And in a world of consumerism, we make it larger than I think it needs to be. But when we talk about the virgin birth, I think that one's an essential. I think it's essential for a couple reasons. And I want to camp out for a few minutes on the theology behind the virgin birth just at a high level. Because, again, we... We know that Mary was a virgin, and we know that she gave birth to the virgin, but sometimes we don't understand the weight behind it. And here's the deal. The virgin birth does something for us. In theology, there's a term called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is defined as the joining of the divine and human natures of Jesus into one person. What that means is, when we say hypostatic union, Jesus was 100% God all the way. And he was 100% man all the way At the same time, he wasn't 50% and 50%. He was 100% and 100%. And you're going to look at me and say, Charlie, how is that possible? I'm going to say, I don't know, right? I I don't. I can give you some ideas and some suggestions. I can give you some analogies and examples of how maybe it worked. But in the scripture, the point is never to solve all the tensions. Sometimes it asks us to not resolve tensions because it points to a God who's bigger than our comprehension. And so what he says about scripture, what it says in scripture about Jesus is that he's fully God and fully man. But that has been something that the church has battled with for 2,000 years, especially in the first 400 before the canon was in place. They really had a problem recognizing they could be fully both. In the second century, for example, there was a group of people, um, docists that rose up and they they held this strong belief that um, essentially Jesus wasn't fully human. It comes from the Greek word to seem, and what it means is that Jesus only seemed like he had a physical body, but he didn't actually have a physical body. It's it's a play on a group called the Gnostics, which believed that physical matter was bad, and so Jesus could not have had a physical body if physical matter was bad. So he wasn't fully human, and they taught this, and they taught they didn't have a real body, and and what you saw was an illusion because he really is God, but the problem with that is if Jesus doesn't have a real body, and he's only divine, if you deny his humanity, then you deny the fact that he really died. And if you deny the fact that he really died because he didn't have a body, you deny the fact that he rose again. And if you deny the resurrection, then you deny the fact that he sacrificed for our sins, which doesn't align with his purpose when he says he will save from sin, right? So if, you, if you're going to 
deny the fact that Jesus was human, fully human, you take away from the sacrifice of Jesus that was his purpose to save us from our sin. It's a big deal. But then it flips the other way. Um, I don't know if you guys know the story of St. Nick or not. It's a good one. And that was in the second century. In the fourth century, at 325, a lot of history in a short period of time, what happened was uh, Constantine took over the world in 313. And before then, Christians were persecuted, wildly persecuted, okay? They were stabbed, and they were torn apart by animals, and they were made game in the Colosseum. And one day, this emperor, this, this warrior said, I'm going to fight, and I'm going to, he saw a picture of a cross, and he said, I'm going to fight in the name of that, and he won. And so then he made an edict that everybody in the Roman Empire was Christian overnight. Beautiful moment, right? And what that meant was, for the first time in the history since Jesus was here, you could talk about following Jesus openly. We take that for granted, without fear of getting torn apart by tigers. And so in 325, um, Constantine said, hey, we believe some different things. Let's talk about it together. And he held something called the Council of Nicaea. And, and they came together to talk about the person of Jesus. And really what it came to talk about was one issue, the person of Jesus, the very nature of Jesus, because it swung back the other way, and it went from Jesus isn't fully human to now there was a group that followed this guy named Arius, and he was saying Jesus isn't fully God. And it comes from a verse in Hebrews chapter 1. It says, the radiance um, and the glory of God was the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his words of power, talking about Jesus. And the two factions... You had one faction that said he is of the same stuff as God. It's one word. And then another faction says, wait, he's not of the same stuff. He's just really, really close. So he's not fully God. He's just really close. It's where St. Nick comes into play. He was a real man at this time. And there's a story about him that I choose to believe is true. Um, and so this guy Arius comes up and he speaks before the council to all these people that probably have been persecuted for their, for their beliefs and lost loved ones. And he says, I don't think Jesus is really God. And if you believe that and have died for that and watched friends die for that, you're going to take that seriously. St. Nick stands up, walks over to him and punches him in the face, right? More people would go to church if we did that. <laughs> I'm scared of the people that are laughing right now. I'm looking at you. <laughs> um... And, and, and he got, anyway, it, it went kind of downhill from there, but it was the seriousness from which they held to the divinity of Jesus. And why that's important, if we lose the sacrificial system or the sacrificial element, if we lose the humanity of Jesus, what we lose in the divinity of Jesus is we lose the divine nature of righteousness. So really what it comes down to, without getting too deep right now, is two things. When Adam sinned, a couple things changed. And and. and when Adam sinned, we had two different words that pop up from there, original sin and imputed sin. Original sin is what happened when Adam sinned. And what it's going to say, it says it in Romans 5.12, for example. What it says in Romans 5.12, I think we have it on the screen, yeah? Grace abounds. Um, Romans 5.12 says, I'll just read it for you. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people. So what we believe is that because Adam's sin, it changed our nature towards sin. It changed our passions and our desires for all of us. It's, it's what we say when we say that we aren't sinners because we've sinned. We sin because we're already sinners. It's how we're wired from the get-go to the original sin of Adam that affected all of us. And then you have this thing called imputed sin. And if you don't believe in original sin, hang out with an infant or read Lord of the Flies. Okay? Two examples. But, 
Imputed sin changed it too. Imputed sin isn't just the fact that we are drawn towards sin as people. It's that we are found guilty of sin before we even sinned in the first place because Adam was a type. So the transference of Adam's guilt is on us. And why that matters is because kind of like in the Old Testament, they would, they would, they would fight battles like this. They'd, they'd pick a type for you and you would carry the weight of your entire group. David and Goliath. So David fought for Israel. Goliath fought for the Philistines. And when he beat Goliath, their armies their armies submitted to one another. So it was this idea that he was a type and whoever won this battle between these two men stood for the rest of our people. So when Adam sinned as a type, all of us were found guilty. Romans 5, 18 says it like this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. It's a simple idea that if Adam's a type and we are guilty through Adam, then Jesus is a type too and we can all be found righteous. It's a beautiful theological picture of why Jesus' sacrifice matters to me. Let me put it this way. The divinity of Jesus is needed because if two humans came together, then he was going to inherit all of their human nature, which is already marred by sin. Because I don't know if you guys have realized this yet, I'm just figuring it out, but you produce in a kid who you are a little bit, right? So for example, yesterday, my wife and I did our first family photo shoot, everybody. And yeah, it was amazing. She, with a buddy of ours, that said, hey, I take pictures, and I would love to take pictures of your family. And my wife said, that'd be amazing. And I said, okay. And I said, that's what I want to do on a Saturday, the weekend of Christmas. Um, really slow time at work. So we, uh, I let my wife pick out my outfit, and I said, let's get this thing happening, right? And so we're taking these pictures, and it's beautiful, and my kid's all dressed up, and we're working it, and we're out in the backyard at this point. This is location number 47, and they're all the same picture, and that's okay, and I love it. Guys, it was a great time, okay? Uh, Anyway, so I'm, I'm holding my kid in our backyard, and Sarah's right here, and she looks at me at one point, and she says, stand up straight. And I said, I am. And she said, I'm taller than you. <laughs> and I just looked at her. And I said, I'm 35 in two days. You don't think I'm already dealing with a little insecurity right here, right now? That's a different drop-down box in online forms. I'm no longer 26 to 34. I'm 35 to 44, and I'm struggling with it a little bit, all right? And so she looks at me, and she says, stand up straight. And I said, I am. And she said, why am I taller than you? And I said, you wore heels. And she said, maybe there's an incline in the lawn. I said, thanks for that, right? (laughs) My point is simply this. After that, I looked at my kid, and I realized, you know, we didn't make a 6'10 WNBA player, all right? Because what you produce is who you are. My simple point here is you can't get a divine nature that's unmarred by sin by two people joining together. It doesn't work that way. The, the point about it is really the virgin birth was necessary if sin was going to be removed and if Jesus remained righteous. Because here's the deal. His point was to come and to save the world from sin. And you didn't need a virgin to save somebody from oppression. You didn't need a virgin birth to deliver somebody and win at war. You needed it if your point and purpose was to deliver people from their sinful nature. So when we talk about the virgin birth, man, I think it's one of those essentials, you know? And so we have a very untraditional, we have a very non-traditional engagement, a very non-traditional family structure. We have a very non-traditional how this anatomy baby comes out, things work in the first place, you know? And then we have a very, very, very non-traditional first few months of marriage. Read the next couple of verses for me. Verse 24. 
When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did what the angel of the Lord told him. He took his wife, but did not have relations with her until she gave birth to a son, whom he named Jesus. I think a couple things there. One, in verse 24, we see a decision point for Joseph. And again, I think it reinforces his righteousness. Because he had a dream and an angel said, do this, but I, I'm, I think that if I got a dream from God and an angel came and I knew it was an angel, I would listen, but I've not listened to pretty clear signs in that too, you know? So Joseph could have easily just ran right there because it was getting a little weird for him, and he didn't. He says the first thing he did was he took his wife and he married her right away. And here's the untraditional nature of that statement is marriage just took a long time to put together in the first century. Again, it was a year between engagement and marriage. You didn't break that because you went to prepare your house for your family. And then when you got married, read John 2, the entire community was involved. And it was days long. And so he just up and eloped. That was not the way things were supposed to be done. And if I'm an outsider looking in, I'm saying, look at this. This can't be of God. This isn't how things work. This isn't the traditional way that we are married and that we bring kids into the world. But what I love about it is we see a common grace of God towards Mary, even though she didn't do anything wrong. Because if he wouldn't have married her, can you imagine the looks she would have gotten if she was pregnant and not married? <laughs> what everybody would have said? So at least at this point, at least at this point, it's a measure of protection for Mary. It's a grace of God for Mary in the moment. But then another thing strikes out at me too. In verse 25, but he didn't have marital relations with her until she gave birth to a son who he named Jesus. <laughs> so uh, if you're from the Catholic faith, you believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she stayed that way forever. And, and partly that's why we believe that she is a saint. I think that's fine. I, I disagree with you. I think the Bible does. I think if you're going to hold that belief, that you also need to think to yourself that if she was a perpetual virgin... Joseph also should be a saint at some point, right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, just just think about it. I'm just, I'm just. When I read the text, that strikes me. If if Mary was a virgin and he was married to Joseph, then I'm nominating him at the next gathering of the people. You know, most patient man ever. So, on a side, it said that he waited until after Jesus was born, and Jesus has brothers and sisters, so we know that, you know, they did the things. And it says that he waited. And here's why I think that's really important is because this whole story is about God acting outside of tradition. This whole story is about God acting outside of ways that are normative or customary in that first century time and place. This whole story is about God acting in ways that people don't see God act. And I think we always look for ways to explain away what God is doing if it's outside of our tradition or expectation, you know? So I think that if, if Joseph would have treated his wife like his wife for the remaining time before Jesus was born, you and I or anybody else that didn't want to believe this could look at this text and say, well, we don't know for sure that it was the Holy Spirit's, <laughs> you know? They didn't have DNA testing back there, and there wasn't Jerry Springer to figure this stuff out. So maybe it could have been Joseph's just as easily. But it says that he, he waited, so there was no confusion, so that you and me and everybody else have no excuse but to say this thing has to be divine. Because it's difficult when God works outside of our tradition. It's extremely difficult. I, I don't love it all the time. Because I, I like tradition. I like tradition a lot. I love my Christmas traditions. I love traditions that my family does. I like candlelight services and silent night. I like traditions. But what this story tells me is that maybe, just maybe, God acts outside of my tradition often and I miss it. 
Maybe what the story tells me is that when God acts outside of our tradition, he's telling us that he's bigger than any one tradition or any one culture. Maybe God's saying, look elsewhere to see me work. And that's not saying he doesn't love tradition. It's just saying he's not boxed in by ours. Just a couple stories. I mentioned the dancing. Somebody sent this to me this week. It was actually Andrea Herndon, who keeps this place running on a week-to-week basis. And uh, she found an article in a newspaper somewhere. I don't know. It was on the internet, so it has to be true. Um, But it was. It it was an article from the Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in 1959. This is somewhere in Kentucky. And I, I saw the picture of it. The headline said, Is Dancing a Sin? Right? And then the subheadline was nine reasons why dancing's a sin. So they didn't manage tension very well. Um, and they gave nine reasons. A couple of my favorites were, one, it destroys spirituality. Two, it's a reversion to savagery. If you, if you dance, I've seen some people dance like that. It's not fun. Um, you know, probably Baptist growing up. Uh, it, it lends itself towards divorces, dancing does. I've seen that kind of dancing too. Um, I love this. Point number eight was dancing leads to hell. That's it. Just dancing leads to hell. All right. I'm going to cha-cha right in there. Uh, And the last one, number nine, was the Bible condemns dancing. It doesn't. (laughs) You You can think it's not becoming, and you can disagree with me there, but it doesn't condemn it. It actually says that people did it, and it said it was holy. And so, look, the point there isn't let's rail on people that don't believe in dancing. It's that when God works outside of our tradition, we do whatever we can to explain it away. That's not how God works. I think through how churches have changed in the last couple decades. I was at Moody. It's a very conservative Bible, church, Bible school. And when I was there, oh, what was it? Probably 12 years ago, 15 years ago, because I'm 35 now. Um, <laughs> when I was there, I remember this conversation I had with a kid. So conservative Christian college, great college, but you, you draw that kind of crowd. And uh, I grew up kind of in the church, and, but not, you know, that way. And so I remember I'm having a conversation with a kid where he did this, choir tour thing, and we're at a church, and they just started something called, and this was new then, keep that in mind, they started something called a Saturday night service, right? And this kid next to me was like, I just can't, I just can't get on board with that. That's just not good. I'm like, what? why is that not good? Because the Sabbath is Sunday. And I want to say, it's really not, though, but that's okay, right? He just came from a tradition where he couldn't get over the fact that that's not traditionally how church is done. It's Sunday morning. How can you do this on Saturday night? You know, Sunday morning is a sacred space. I think through different iterations of how churches work. One for me right now, personally, that I'm dealing with is I drove by several churches on my way in this last week, and we started Christmas Eve services some places last Tuesday, you know? And, and I'm, I'm sitting here saying, because people asked today and this week, and somebody asked between services, why didn't you just do Christmas Eve services Sunday and Monday? That would have been way easier on our staff. And you know why? Because I still think Christmas Eve services belong on Christmas Eve, right? And, and here's the deal. I'm not necessarily right about that. <laughs> Just because that's my tradition doesn't mean that God doesn't work out, doesn't mean that people aren't going to hear the message of Jesus on a Christmas Eve service last Tuesday, you know? And to write those things off when God works outside of our tradition boxes God into our traditions. It's a scary place to be. So the story of Mary and Joseph, the story of what's going on in this picture is really a story of God working outside of any one tradition and any one culture. In the end, It's God working um, untraditionally. It reminds us that he's bigger than any tradition and culture and is working out something far bigger than anything we can expect. It's the story of Christmas. They didn't see it. 
from the engagement to the family structure to what Jesus came to save them from to the virgin birth in the first place to how Joseph responded afterwards. It was extremely untraditional. And you know why? Because it paints a picture of a God who works and who's bigger than our traditions and expectations. And that's why it starts by saying, now the birth of Christ happened this way. It tells us the story of who God is. And in a season of traditions that I love, I need to be reminded that God works outside of those things too. And maybe I should look there a little more and expect God to work. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that you're bigger than my boxes. I'm thankful that you're bigger than my traditions and I'm thankful that you're bigger than our culture even though I like to be a part of it. I pray this Christmas as we tell the story of Jesus coming near that we remind ourselves that you're up to something bigger than what we can fit into our boxes. I pray that that's encouraging and I pray that it gives us joy and I pray that it causes us to worship because you're a God that's bigger than what I can fathom, bigger than me. I pray that as we read the story of Mary and Joseph that we're reminded that you're faithful and good even when you're unconventional or untraditional. I pray for Christmas this year that we realize and recognize again that you came near and broke almost all the rules in doing it because you love and cared for us. And that causes a sense of awe and worship in us. And I pray all these things in the name of the God who came and walked with us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.